You're listening to The LizCast with me, Liz Norrell. In this podcast, we talk about lots of different things. The common thread, though, is that they fascinate me. I'm curious about them. Or I feel like we need to talk about them more. Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about my word for 2020 and how that's showing up for me this week as I go back to work preparing for students to come to our classes next week. I know lots of people who love choosing a word for the year. I started this practice a couple of years ago, mostly because my yoga teacher and my yoga teacher trainer, Anna Guest Jelly, talks about it on her Love Curvy Yoga podcast every year. And particularly when I went through life coach training with Courageous Life Coaching Certification and Kate Swoboda, I really felt like choosing a word for the year was a good way to set an intention for all the things that I would do over that year. In 2019, the word I chose was intentional. Coming out of coach training in 2018 and thinking about how to incorporate yoga and coaching and all the other things that I do into my life in a way that didn't leave me feeling ragged and burned out, that was going to take some intentionality. And so to keep myself grounded, to keep myself centered on that intention, (laughs) on that word, I uh, went to a website called myintent.org, which is a website where you can buy lots of different merchandise. You can buy these bracelets where they stamp the word of your choosing on a metal disc and then make a make a bracelet out of it. So I got a bracelet that said intentional and I wore it just about every single day of 2019. Not every day did I look at it and think about what that word meant, but I wore it with me and carried it with me to remind myself to be really thoughtful, to be intentional about the ways that I chose to spend my time. So I knew that I was going to pick a word for 2020 and, you know, sometimes I'll go through a fairly rigorous or formal process to do this, but my word for 2020 came to me pretty easily. It was in one of these workshops that I hold occasionally at the Chattery in Chattanooga. It's a workshop that I call a little me time with a nod to a band called the Floating Men who have a song called a little me time. In this workshop, I bring women together to do some uh, journaling, some reflecting, some thinking through, like, what do you want your life to look like? And how is it not currently living up to that? What steps could you take to live a life more in alignment with what you want your life to be? That sort of stuff. And so part of that is... Uh, one, one thing that I like to incorporate into that workshop is an exercise around defining your values. And so I have this list of different value words, which I'm happy to share with you. If you'd like me to, you can always get in touch on my website at liznorrell.com. And uh, I, so I have this list of value words. And while the, the two people who came to the workshop in December were working on this, I was looking at it myself and sort of using it as a way to just really notice what words, what value words were pulling at me, which ones were resonating with me in this moment. And as I think about what I want 2020 to be for me, and what I want 
to really embrace in the year ahead. And one word just really jumped out to me. And I have to be honest, I was really surprised that this was the word that just I kept coming back to you. I felt a pull towards it in a way that I can't really explain. And that word was audacity. So if you know me, you know that I'm a pretty quiet person. Is that even true? I'm, I'm the kind of person who's uncomfortable in the spotlight. But I'm also pretty confident in what I know. In the sense that let me let me think about how I want to say this. So I I have pretty strong feelings about how I want to live my life. Obviously, I have a podcast. It's basically about that. And I have pretty strong feelings about the things where I feel like I have some expertise. So things like how to be a great teacher. I have a lot of feelings around that. How to organize your books. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of thoughts about that. And that's not to say that I, I don't feel like I'm especially rigid or dogmatic, although I certainly will be the first to admit that I have some issues around control and letting go and just going with the flow and that sort of thing. Absolutely. But I'm not the kind of person who feels super comfortable with this idea of being audacious. Of To me, audacity is a way of stepping out or playing bigger um, in the language of Tara Moore. I have been trying in a really conscientious way for about a year and a half, two years now, to think about playing bigger, but not, I mean, sort of expressly not in an audacious way. And so the fact that I kept coming back to this word, audacity, was really intriguing to me. And, and it might just be this moment that I'm living in, because in the last year, and especially in the last six months, I've undertaken several actions that are efforts to be much more visible in this world. And that feels really uncomfortable. I have to, I have to tell you, like, I, am, I don't feel comfortable with this idea that I'm going to put myself out in the world as someone who has some sort of capital W wisdom to share with others. I, I do that in my classroom, but I, I certainly am aware that when you put yourself out in the world like that, you're inviting trolls, you're inviting so much. Um, it's like when you put yourself out in the world as someone who has some of that capital W wisdom to share, you're making a statement and expecting to get a result. And that makes you vulnerable to any criticism that might arise that you are not a trustworthy source on that topic. I hope that makes sense. I guess what I'm saying is that I have enough insecurities on my own without opening myself up with an engraved invitation for other people to prey on those insecurities. And so when, for example, I auditioned to give a TEDx talk last fall, um, really just about, I guess, six or eight weeks ago, that felt supremely audacious. But it was audacity in a way that honestly left me feeling pretty energized. Because it came with this clarity that said, I have something valuable to say. And it's so important to me that people hear this message. 
that I'm willing to open myself up to that potential criticism and the trolling and all of that just to get this message out. I want to do more things like that. I want to do things where I'm standing up for something that I believe in so deeply that the criticism that that standing up might invite matters less to me than the potential impact of what I'm saying. And so that's a really, really long wind up for what I want to talk about today, which is something that has been unfolding in my life this week. And I want to be really clear that I'm about to talk about stuff that's happening at work. And in so doing, I'm not in any way attempting to represent my employer. And I'm not attempting to engage in criticism of people with whom I happen to work. But instead, I want to use some of the experiences I've had over the last week as examples of what I see as a broader thing that's happening in higher education. And it's been happening for a long time, but I feel like there are pockets of people in higher education right now who are starting to become aware of the potential downsides to these trends. And that's why I want to talk about them. So if you're listening to this and you happen to work with me, please know that this is not designed to call out any particular person or uh, discipline or mindset, but rather to talk about what it is that we're doing in higher education to start with. Okay, so with that disclaimer, um, on Monday this week, we had a really powerful speaker come to our campus. Her name is Dr. Donna Beagle, and she does work to help people learn how to communicate across different barriers. And specifically, she's very focused about how we talk about and interact with people who are experiencing poverty. Dr. Beagle was herself um, in and out of homelessness when she was younger and a college student. And she came to college as a 26-year-old having just completed her GED and really having no no, no um, educational experience, no real social connections or social capital around what it meant to go to college or why you might even want to go to college. Uh, but she she persevered and got a PhD and she now works as a consultant to help other people learn how to demystify and understand and be a resource for and an advocate for people who are experiencing homelessness. She was with us for the day on campus and it was so important to the leadership of our college that we messaged to the community that this was something that was critically important to us and our mission that we actually shut down our entire campus for a morning so that every single person on campus from the frontline service people to the deans and department heads and vice presidents from the janitor janitors i should say to librarians to you know, the people who cut paychecks. Well, we don't really cut paychecks, but you know, process payroll. All of those people could come. And in fact, we're expected to. And we sat in the gym for about three hours and we listened to Donna Beagle tell us about what we need to know about poverty. 
In the days since, we've had a number of professional development workshops on campus that have focused around this issue of poverty writ large. And that could be everything from uh, who on our campus is experiencing poverty. And by on our campus, I mean employees. We learned that there are people who work on our campus full time who are making less than $20,000 a year. That's absolutely appalling. We talked about the plight of adjuncts in higher education, something that I could talk about for hours with my own experiences and observations. And we've also had a number of workshops where we are attempting to reorient our perspectives on students so that students who might be experiencing poverty or who come from a background of generational or situational poverty, we can help them. Oh, I don't even want to use the word help. We can we can understand where they're coming from and be part of the path to a more stable life and a life of really achieving the success that they can achieve, whatever that might be. I'm choosing my words carefully here. And so I found myself in a workshop yesterday with a several colleagues. And it was a workshop being led by a faculty member in one of those uh, courses that we sometimes in higher education call gateway courses, which are courses that have very high enrollments and that serve as something of a gateway to academic programs and progress. And this particular faculty member, who is herself a woman of color, is concerned about the low success rates of particularly male students of color in this gateway course. And so she's devised this system. It's a very, very high touch, high demand, HR appropriate touch. I just mean a lot of attention. I want to be clear. Uh, Clarity is important. It's something that takes a lot of her time. And essentially it involves creating a weekly checklist that students go through and, and they check off items as they do them. And as they do so, they become competent in the things that they will need to succeed in the class. So as we're starting this workshop, the um, facilitator, my colleague, asks everyone in the room to introduce themselves and sort of talk about what challenges they face with students and how they hope that they might be able to reach those students. And so I sat and, and listened as everyone went around the table. I was at the end of the snake here, so I was going to go last. And I was just listening to hear what other people might say about where they are and what what struggles they're facing in the classroom that they would like to get some help with. And I heard person after person after person say things that, honestly, I have been hearing people say in rooms across campuses for a decade or more, honestly. So I was at this teaching conference last summer. Um, It brings together literally hundreds, if not thousands, of professors who are focused on quality teaching together for two or three days of, of workshops and reflection. And I sat in room after room after room, just getting more and more angry as I listened to my colleagues from a variety of institutions, a variety of institutional types all across the country and indeed around the world, talk about students in such disparaging ways. Things like, well, if you don't lock the door when class starts, then they will just think that they can wander in whenever. 
or you've got to make sure that they are turning in everything on time because that's how the real world works or you can't let students redo work because then they'll just never have an incentive to get it right or we have to spoon feed everything to students because otherwise they'll never figure it out when I hear people talking about students like this, I have to say I get extremely upset and angry and so sad all at the same time. And in fact, on Monday when Dr. Donna Beagle was on campus, she was talking at one point in her presentation about how communication theory tells us that you cannot not communicate. And each of us knows, she said, if you're in a conversation with someone who doesn't like you or who doesn't believe you, you know it. You know it immediately. Nobody, you don't need a lot of verbal cues to get that. Their body language, their facial expressions, we are really good as evolved humans. And this is part of how we've evolved as a species is being able to recognize when people are not invested in us or who don't like us or are not accepting us because that's a threat to our survival. People know that. And I think about all of the people who come to teaching with these thoughts about their students that are so unforgiving and so critical and just assume the worst possible motivation or explanation from their students for why they're behaving that way. And their students know that. I I cried as I thought about all of the students who encounter professors who think so little of them and how as educators, I really, I really feel like the Hippocratic oath that applies to medical professionals should apply in the classroom as well. At minimum, at minimum, education should be be neutral. We should not be actively harming our students. And when you come into a classroom with an, a posture and an assumption that your students are there for the wrong reasons, that they don't care, that they, they're not motivated, that they're lazy, that they're checked out, that they will never do anything unless you spood feed them and coddle them, and that they, they don't read because they don't care and they're not prepared and they didn't even learn how to write an essay in high school. So how am I, as a college professor, supposed to teach them anything? When we think these things, our students know it and it sends them a message that they are not worthy of the spot that they occupy in our classrooms. Brene Brown says, if you approach the world feeling like you're not enough, the world will always give you evidence to back that assumption up. And when we have students who are living in poverty coming into our college classrooms, looking for evidence that they don't belong because nobody in their life has ever come to college before, and they've had the, yes, audacity to think that they can make it, they come in expecting to be told that they're not good enough and we send them messages every day that they're right. And my heart breaks for them because we aren't just failing to reach them. We are making it harder for them 
to crawl and claw and fight their way out of the generational poverty that has hurt generations of their families. We are not just failing to do our jobs. We're making it harder for the people who are doing their jobs to be successful at doing so. And it is unforgivable and unacceptable. And I'm really angry (laughs) in addition to also crying a little right now. So I sat in this workshop yesterday and I listened to these comments that are just representative of this particular ethos in higher education. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I am not going to listen to this anymore. And I said something. I spoke up. When I teach American government to my political science students, I ask them to read the book Just Mercy. And we start the semester by me saying, this book is hard to read because it is. It's a hard book to read. The words and the concepts and the sentences are not challenging, but the but the experiences that Brian Stevenson captures in that book will break your heart. But I tell my students, this book may be hard to read, but it's even harder to live. And the very least we can do is bear witness to the experiences of people who have been so thoroughly mistreated by our system of criminal justice, such as it is. I believe the same thing about our students. Every single person who works in education, you are in rooms with teachers who are complaining about their students in ways that are unfair, uninformed, and sometimes downright dehumanizing. And we, as educators, we can no longer allow that to happen. You have a responsibility to speak up for your students because they may not even know to speak up for themselves. They already believe that they don't deserve the spot that they're occupying in your classroom. They're not going to stand up and fight for that seat. You have to do it for them. That's your job. As educators, we teach the students we have, not the students we wish that they were, or we feel like they should have become before they got to us. Your responsibility is to teach the people who walk through your door, and to do that means you have to understand them, you have to get to know them, you have to make a relationship with them, and you must respect and indeed love them. And if you're not willing to do that, you need to get out of the way because there are lots of people out there who are desperate for a job teaching in college and you are taking up a spot that you don't deserve. It's not your students who are occupying space that they haven't earned. It's you who is in the way and you need to get out or speak up. So audacity in 2020 for me looks like this. It looks like saying, no, I will not be complicit. I will not sit in a room and listen to you talk about my students in this way without getting in your face and saying that is unacceptable in 2020. Our students deserve better. My students inspire the hell out of me every single day that I come to work. Every one of them. The fact that they make it into our classroom is a victory. And if they are showing up, they want to learn. But they want to learn from someone who respects them enough to teach them. 
And you cannot do that if you resent your students. You cannot do that if you don't recognize how hard they fought to get to that seat. Over the summer, I went to a writing retreat. This was just before I came back to school in August. I went to a writing retreat with the inimitable Jen Loudon. I hope you'll check her out. You can find more about her in the show notes for this episode. But I went to start working on this book project that uh, I spent a week in New Mexico sweating beyond all belief because I don't like to be hot and it was hot. But I went to New Mexico and spent, spent a week writing this book that I decided I was going to write when I sat in that teaching conference last June and listened to faculty members talk disparagingly about their students. And the working title for this book, it's Stop Blaming Students. I want to read just a little bit of that to you right now. And then I'll, and then I'll close out. I have a hard time imagining a more revolutionary task than assembling a group of people together to learn something new. What is more subversive than casting aside ignorance in favor of illumination? But even if your worldview doesn't see education as inherently disruptive, surely we can all agree that when people come into a classroom, they are there because they are motivated in whatever way to move from the status quo to another state. Maybe they just want a credential that will allow them to earn more money. While not perhaps the impulse we as educators would most sincerely hope would bring them into our classrooms, this is still a desire to change the status quo of our students' lives. A few years ago, educator Chris Emden came to our campus to give an opening of school lecture to faculty. As the author of what he calls reality pedagogy, Emden delivers a passionate, energetic call to faculty to reimagine their teaching as an act of empowering each student in the room. I distinctly remember him pulling his cell phone out of his pocket, holding it above his head and asking, when our students have the sum total of human knowledge in their hands, what do they need us for? I can think of many answers my colleagues in the teaching profession might give to that rhetorical question. Perhaps you think the students need us to provide expert level organization to their study. Maybe you believe that your worth is in getting novices excited about your endlessly fascinating topic of expertise. You might think that deep knowledge about ancient Western civilizations is vital to be a competent citizen in today's global community. You might have horror stories about internet research going horribly wrong, information literacy skills being, you know, what they are these days. But Emden's point cuts deeper than this. He's really challenging us to think about what it happens in our classroom from a social perspective. Engaging in his reality pedagogy means learning the culture and language of our students, meeting them where they are, and nudging them forward to more nuanced understanding of the world and, indeed, of themselves. Thanks for listening to this rant, y'all. I care deeply about this. And I hope you do too, and that you'll join me on this path. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, make it a great one.